Hello again, and welcome back to episode 7 of the CarvaCast podcast. This is a weekly podcast and initiative of the Carver Project. The goal of the podcast is to engage with Christian faculty in higher education and highlight their work to bridge those connections between university, church, and society. My name is Penina Achaya Laker, and I'm here with my most esteemed co-host, John Inazu. We're both faculty at Washington University in St. Louis and fellows with the Carver Project. We're excited today to spend some time with Peter Fever. Peter, welcome to the CarvaCast. It's great to be here. Peter, it's great to have you. Um, I wanted to let our listeners know that uh, I first met you when you were a professor and I was an undergraduate uh, student at Duke, which feels like a long time ago. But um, uh, And now anyway. you have completely surpassed me in excellence and, and worldly fame. So I'm proud. <laughs> I think that's not true. That's not true at all. Perhaps I've, I've, I've followed your lead in some ways, uh, some modest ways. Um, but I, but you've been, uh, you know, you've been a publicly known Christian who's also been doing important work, uh, both in the academy and in government for a long time. And I'm excited to unpack some of that. Uh, today. But anyway, it's just great to be back in touch with you and, and glad that you get to uh, meet Penina on this podcast as well. Yeah. Well, that's um, great. And I, I noticed that you've already found two ways of saying that I'm really old. So we'll see how many more ways you can. <laughs> well, we're going to put up that picture that looks like you're 12 years old. So I just need to you know situate this for our, for our listeners and viewers. Uh, well, why, why don't we just start by telling us, uh, having you tell us a little bit about how you found your way into what you do. Uh, you, I mean, we're both political scientists, sort of, but we do very different things. <laughs> so maybe uh, share a little bit about your background and how you came to teaching. Sure. Well, I'm a faculty brat. That is, my dad was a classics professor. Uh, he was the first of his family to ever go to college, let alone go all the way to PhD and become a professor. So he kind of went from zero to 100 uh, but he was a professor of classics at Lehigh University. And so I grew up in that environment. And so when I was young, I think around third grade or something, we had a, to write a what do I want to be when I grow up essay. And I said, I wanted to be a classics professor at Lehigh University. <laughs> and then I wrote, I said, I knew that would be a very high bar. And if I couldn't do that, then I'd be a classics professor at Oxford. That was what I thought. <laughs> um, so uh, I went uh, in high school, I went to, uh, I didn't have a choice of where I was going to go to college. I went to Lehigh where my dad was a professor. Uh, and there um, I showed my uh, rebellion against my dad by becoming uh, the mentoree of one of his best friends who taught international relations. And Carrie Joint was his name. And uh, they, the Joints were, were good friends of the Fevers. We had Christmas dinners together many times or Thanksgiving dinners, whatever. Uh, and, and Carrie's son, David, showed his rebellion by becoming the mentoree of my dad. So we swapped dads. <laughs> um, and each told the other how we thought we were embarrassed by our own dad, but impressed by the other ones. Um <laughs> But uh, when I finished uh, up uh, Lehigh and was trying to figure out what to do after college, uh, graduate school was one option, but it wasn't the only option I explored. I looked at a lot of, of different places, and I 
compared to the kinds of uh, professionalized preparation that the PhD files I see now, the applicant files I see now, mine was really slipshod. I applied to just a couple schools, uh, and I applied to the Harvard government department rather than the Harvard government school, rather than the Kennedy school, mainly because the government department's application was was easier, you know, less onerous than the Kennedy school. So I I ended up providentially, in spite of myself, in a PhD program at at Harvard, uh, but. There, I I gradually got more serious uh, and learned a little bit more about what I really wanted to be when I grew up. And it was there that I realized what I wanted to be was like my PhD mentor, uh, who was Joe Nye. And he uh, had then and still, um, you know, a phenomenal career, both inside government and as a major voice in policy debates, but also outside government as a major voice in um, academic debates. And I thought that was a very attractive uh, career profile and and one I wanted to pursue. And so I I took his advice carefully about how how to go from there. And I love graduate school so much, uh, I would have stayed, I'd still be in graduate school if I could have gotten away with it. Uh, But eventually, look, we're going to kick you out, and you have to go. And so I finished and I left. Peter, I'm curious, what was it about graduate school and that experience that made you not want to say, sounds like you had really good mentorship. Beyond that, what else? I I did. I had great friends. uh, surrounded by really interesting people, and it it seemed like what we were arguing about really mattered. So this was the yeah. mid '80s uh, when I went into graduate school. Everyone was worried about that the Reagan administration might blow up the world, basically. And so my dissertation was formed against the backdrop of that concern. And then by the time I finished, we were ending the Cold War. I finished in February of '90, um, and so. Uh, the world was just a fascinating place uh, and a place where all things could be imagined anew. And so every day was an interesting conversation and I was surrounded by brilliant people, everyone smarter than me. So I was learning a ton from every conversation and I was having fun. You know, it's, <laughs> it's fun to be uh, in your 20s in Cambridge. It's a, it's a very fun, mm-hmm. fun um, environment. Uh, and the the Harvard program was generous enough that I thought I was uh, well off. You know, I could I could eat, I could pay my rent, and I had no other responsibilities. I, nowadays, grad, students are going to graduate school a little later in life. They have families, they have kids. Mm. That's a very different environment from what I experienced. Um, I was going to say, and, and it sounds like, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, you went to graduate school right away from undergrad? Or did yes. you take some time off? Wow. I went to graduate school because all of my other plans fell through. (laughs) So, so yes, that's why I went straight away. I had two blissful months uh, in between uh, uh, undergrad and and PhD. But it also sounds like you, I hadn't realized this until you said it a few minutes ago, from the front end, you really mapped out a career that would have you both in government and policy work and in the university. Is that right? Yes. 
I uh, Joe Nye said that the tenure union card is much harder to get than the policy union card. So make sure you optimize for getting tenure uh, and and treat policy work as this the subsidiary task. But uh, we structured it so that I could do uh, keep both alive. And what's your experience? Ben, in, in jumping back and forth? I mean, I know you've done it several times. Do you have a, sort of a favorite moment or a hard moment that comes to mind? I'm very glad that I've been able to do uh, all uh, things. That is to have a active research agenda, to teach extraordinary students, um, to uh, have a, a, a toe in the policy waters. I would add, I'm also glad I get to do university service, but that feels a little bit <laughs> uh, <laughs> insincere to say that. I also do university service because it's important, but I enjoy the other three things. And um, I think if I only did one, I'd get tired of it. So I find myself you know, burning out if I'm only doing research and I miss the students. Uh, but also by the time you know, policy work is very tiring and I was looking forward to returning to Duke um, uh, when I had the chance to return. Right. Tell us a little bit about the research that you've done and, and are doing in, in the field of international relations and civil military relations. So I have a number of uh, areas that uh, have been my focus. I, as I said, I started out uh, on nuclear command and control issues. That was what my first book was and my second major project looked at nuclear command and control and in, in proliferating in new nuclear states. Um, and then uh, my next two projects were at the civil military relations side of things. How uh, does the American civilian leadership interact with the military, senior military leaders? That's one basket. And then how does the civilian society interact with the military as an institution? That's another basket. And I've done a, a lot of work in those two baskets. Um, and indeed, the, the book I'm working on right now looks at public support for the U.S. military and this phenomenon that we have uh, a high level of regard for the military, but a low propensity to join the military. And so you have, you know, High regard at high remove. It's thanks for your service. I'm glad you're doing it so I don't have to kind of thing. And so looking at what high levels of public confidence in that context means, that's what the book I'm writing with uh, Jim Golby, who's a, a really great younger scholar who's now at UT Austin. And then the other area I've written a lot on is grand strategies, uh, American strategic choices, strategic planning, those kinds of uh, issues, which is another uh, area of focus. On the respect and distance in the military, I'm curious, is there, I, I'm assuming there's an increasing class-based component to that as well? Uh, less than you would think. Um, there, there's a partisan dimension that's, that's greater, uh, that public, uh, the Democrats hold the military in high esteem, but the Republicans hold it in really, really high esteem. And so uh, that there is a, a almost tribal aspect uh, to the Republican 
view of the military. So I would say the partisan dynamic is stronger than others. Uh-huh. But even in who joins, though? I mean, is there a class dimension in who joins, or does that not Yes. Come? Yeah, it's, um, it's not the top quintile, so the, and it's not the bottom quintile. It's the mi- middle quintiles uh, in uh-huh. SES terms. Uh, so the, at the very bottom, uh, folks don't qualify for the military. They don't meet the health or education, um, other kinds of requirements. And then the very top quintile, the, uh, the most privileged, might have other um, opportunities. But it's something of a myth that, you know, the folks in the military are there because they have no other options and they're, they're downtrodden. That's the striped view of the military. I don't know if you've watched the movie from the late, early 80s. I think it was 81 or something. You know, we you were just kids then, Peter. That was... Yeah. Well, it's... <laughs> I teach a class on film and American Grand Strategy, and we watched that film. And it, in it, the um, the people, the heroes, join the military because they're so bad they can't even be taxi car, cab drivers. They, you know, they they fail at everything they do, and so they go to the military. That that's not the military we have today. Uh, and um, if you're in the military, your higher likelihood that you come from a two career family and intact family and and other kinds of markers that 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 are associated with higher levels of SES. Yeah, I wonder, maybe I'm struck by it because as a veteran myself, I always feel like I'm a Martian walking around on campus. I mean, I meet almost no faculty members who are also veterans. And uh, so it could just be stratified in our particular field more than others. For sure. And at the in the elite academy, that's a that's a real issue. So, so Peter, how are you able to so I'm really struck by the, the multiple hats that you wear, first of all. And I, I'm curious about how you're able to um, sort of bridge uh, sort of like the two buckets. Mm-hmm. So you have the academia and then you have the policy work, the government work. How, how do, that, do those inform each other in, in, in some ways? And how are you able to manage it all? Uh, very much so. One of my books uh, called Armed Servants uh, came out of my experience working in the White House in the Clinton administration. I was a lowly director for defense policy and arms control. It's a lofty title, director for defense <laughs> policy and arms control. It's actually the lowest professional uh, staff level on the NSC staff. Um, so anyway, I was a director and I was watching Civ Mill up close, uh, maybe from the inside, you might say. And what I was observing did not align with what was I knew from the classic work that describes American civil mill, namely Sam Huntington's Soldier and State. Sam was on my dissertation committee, and so I knew that book well, and I also knew that that's how the military thinks things ought to go, but that's not how they were going, <laughs> at least not from the Clinton White House point of view. And so the I went back to Duke and... One, the book I wrote, Armed Servants, uh, was different and inspired by uh, this this experience. Can I describe a theoretical model that more closely approximates what I saw than the reigning model, which was Sam's? And so uh, I feel like that question came directly out of my policy experience. Likewise, uh, when I went back in the administration in the Bush uh, administration this time now, 2005 to 2007, 
I was regularly using the tools, the analytic tools that I had developed as a political scientist, as an academic political scientist, using them to do my work uh, at the White House. Uh, now, I was in a job, strategic planning, which is where you usually park the professors. Even, it's safe to park them there because they're not going to do any damage or they'll minimize <laughs> the damage they do in strategic planning. Um, but uh, nevertheless, it, I'm confident that I was able to do things uh, because there and contribute there precisely because of my academic background and then my and my mm. academic network. So I see the the benefits flowing both ways. It's mm-hmm. great. And as far as teaching goes, do you have a a class that you hold dear to your heart that is a favorite for you? Yeah, my favorite class is whatever is the class I'm teaching right now. And my second favorite is whatever is the class I imagine I'll teach next. So huh. I'm always, uh, you know, loving the class and then thinking, oh, there's something I could do that would make it better. Um, so I I teach some courses over and over again. I teach the intro to international relations class many, many times. I love co-teaching. I've, I've done a lot of co-teaching uh, with um, – I love being in the classroom with people who have different perspectives. So I do a lot of co-teaching with professor, uh, historians. I'm a political scientist. We have a lot of fun uh, fighting with each other. I do, um, I do co-teaching with General Dempsey, who's the retired chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He and I teach two courses together, American Civil-Military Relations, Theory and Practice. I'm the theory. He's the practice. I love that course. And then he and I taught the... Uh, American Grand Strategy through film class, which was just a lot of fun. And he's he's great to watch a film with um, and analyze a film. He he got his master's in literature, English literature, and then he went back to West Point to teach English. So um, he's got an interesting combo of perspectives. And then way back in the day, I'd, I taught a course with an English professor uh, who um, was a, is a dear brother in Christ, uh, Ian Bauckham, and we talked together because we realized we were both covering the same current events topics, namely American foreign policy, with zero overlap in the readings and in the perspective. And we imagined how crazy it would be for a student to go from his class to my class. Uh, And we thought, wouldn't it be fun to do it all together? And so we co-taught that. That was a lot of fun. It's almost like we teed you up for that answer, Peter. Penny and I uh, just finished co-teaching a class uh, at the intersection of law and graphic design, which is another sort of discipline that you don't necessarily anticipate and have a lot to say to each other. And yet we found quite a bit of common ground. And to your point, uh, it just expands my thinking so much to be with someone reading the same texts and talking about the same issues, but with a different skill set. And to me, it's one of the most fun ways to be part of the university. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things we sometimes encounter talking with Christian faculty around the country is a sense of uh, people not feeling like they can be open about their faith or known as a Christian. Uh, and, And one of the stories I heard either from you or about you a long time ago, and it's always stuck with me, is that you kind of 
when you first got to Duke, uh, didn't really give yourself the option to sort of <laughs> be unknown as a Christian. Could you could you tell us a little bit about that story? Right. So I I recognize the temptation to stay in the closet, and as in that would you know, if you came out of the closet as a Christian, you would compromise your chances for tenure. That's what I had been told, and I recognize that that was. True advice, but maybe not good advice, meaning mm. they were probably right, but that I had a higher call. And then I re- wrestled with that temptation and I decided I would just make it uh, impossible uh, to indulge that temptation. I wrote a letter to the uh, then stu- faculty news newspaper. So back in that day, there was a newspaper that had. Um, uh, you know, that covered faculty topics of interest in the same way that the student newspaper, which still exists, ca- uh, carries things from the student perspective. And I wrote either a letter or something. I can't remember the exact uh, medium, but it was basically a, hey, I'm a Christian on campus. Is there any Bible studies for professors up out here? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I knew the answer to that question because I already had one or two Christian professor friends. Um, but I, I thought this was a way of just being out there. And then, um, you know, you say the embarrassing thing once and then, uh, you don't have to, um, dread it in the future. So, uh, I have to say that, um, I really haven't experienced a lot of, uh, direct persecution, uh, or, or even, you know, in your face bias, uh, because of my Christian identity. Uh, that may be because I have many offensive dimensions to my identity and there's plenty of other things that I do. Like I'm a very policy oriented and the Academy tends to frown on that. And then I served in the Bush administration, which is really offensive, uh, to many of my colleagues. And so, I received a lot more, um, you know, chin music uh, from friends and colleagues over serving in the Bush administration than over being an out-of-the-closet evangelical. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, you know, in the other direction, as you were talking, I was struck that you sort of came of age as a as a scholar right in the era that there were these reflections on the scandal of the evangelical mind in Mark Knoll's words, right? The idea that that, that Christians, uh, especially at intellectual levels, were not that thoughtful, were not that educated, just couldn't keep up. And mm-hmm. I wonder, as you've sort of gone through your career, what, have, what has been your sense of Christian engagement in your discipline and the academy? What's your, what's your sense of wor- working both as a Christian speaking to a non-Christian discipline, but also trying to talk to Christians as well? Well, I did have the advantage of growing up in a Christian home that was also an academic home. And so the false binary that you could either be intelligent or you could be a Christian, but you couldn't be both, uh, just was alien to me. The smartest people I knew were Christians and had been from, you know, the beginning of my life. And I always was around people who were brilliant, but who also 
uh, were passionate about um, pursuing and following Christ. So in a sense, that gave me an advantage, I think, because I, I had less of the the guilt baggage that that someone who was a later convert or, or didn't grow out of a Christian home might have brought uh, to bear. Uh, at the on the other hand, I do recognize that most of that, that the prevailing biases in higher education assumes that this binary has some merit to it, and and so if you identify as a Christian, that's a little bit like you know saying you're not so smart, uh, and you have to prove that you're. You're not as dumb as that identity marker just suggested to the other person. And so um, I've tried to be attentive to that and to uh, avoid giving into the the stereotypes and caricatures that uh, exist out there in, in the society and have just enough truth to them to uh, stay alive. Um, are there any interesting um, stories or scenarios that you could share that uh, you've found to be encouraging that have helped you integrate your faith into the work that you do on campus? So I would say there was uh, one that was not encouraging but sober. And uh, it, it happened just a couple years ago. Uh, and I went to a um, an alumni event, and it was an alumni from John's era, actually. So I, I don't know exactly what year it was, but uh, I spoke to the event. You know, this, this was f- around alumni weekend, and then this was an event just for Christians alumni. And so I went and I spoke to that, and. Someone from the audience said, oh, I was a student at Duke, never took your class, but everyone knew you were a professor. I'm oh, sorry, a Christian who, or a professor who claimed to be a Christian. Uh, at least everyone in his circle did. And I realized in that moment, wow, a lot more people were watching me uh, from the Christian community than I was interacting with. So I felt good about the students that I was directly mentoring and uh, and things like that. But I realized that there was a much more public uh, role I was playing than I realized. And it it, it scared me a little bit, you know. Um, and it, it felt a little bit like that classic uh, warning that, that preachers like to give you. Imagine if you're on your forehead, every thought you were having was, you know, displayed. And I, you know, that's a terrifying (laughs) thought. Right. Or the the Christian bumper sticker on your car, right? (laughs) Exactly. But, but uh, I realized that, uh, you know, not for all 6,000 Duke undergrads every year, but for a larger number than I realized, they were watching me. Mm. Uh, And so uh, that's a very sobering thing. That's the downside. The upside is, uh, well, I shouldn't say downside. That, that's that is part of your calling. It's just the it's a scary part of the calling. The joyful part of the calling is all of the Christian students that I have gotten a chance to work with in a more 
you know, one-on-one kind of way or small group kind of way where watched them grow. Uh, and, you know, some of them have become, you know, superstars like, like John. I, and uh, they've all just, uh, that's the great reward of being a professor is, is working with people who eclipse you. Uh, down the line. And so um, I can think of several that are coming to mind right now of people that I spent a lot of time with who are doing great things now. And I I feel like I was able to encourage them as a Christian professor during a formative part of their own development. Uh, and that that's what I was called to do. Right. And I think both pieces of what you just said are so important. It's the formative time, but it's also in your role as a professor because you can speak into uh, giftedness and dreams and passions in a way that's just different than a pastor or a campus minister because you're you're seeing into their lives through a different lens. That's great. Um, I want to, you know, when you were talking a a minute ago about your own upbringing and, and having the benefit of not seeing maybe a, a less intellectual side of, of Christianity. I was struck or reminded about what some people are now describing as a, perhaps a divide between so-called evangelical elites and, and the rest of evangelicalism. I sometimes either am accused or accuse myself of being a kind of evangelical elite in the sense that where I feel like I'm speaking and writing is often maybe heard by a, a much smaller group of Christians than I might assume. <laughs> and I, I mean, I just knowing some of our common friends and common circles, I assume that you experience this yourself. And I, I wonder if you've had any thoughts, especially in the last couple of years of, about that potential divide and, and possible ways to bridge it. Well, I do think that the very term evangelical is, is, uh, so loaded now with extra layers of cultural baggage and even political baggage that uh, I still use it. I still self-identify that way, but I recognize that uh, it's off-putting. <laughs> right. And and so we may, you know, in my lifetime, we may reach the point where we need a different term to mean what what I mean when I say evangelical. But more to your point, uh, I I don't know if this is because I'm a Christian or because I'm a contrarian or because I'm both, but I really seek out uh, the unusual friends, the odd combos, the surprising... Um, you know, the fish out of water kind of moments. Uh, and th- this is the other aspect of my upbringing, which was that my parents were leaders in the charismatic home church movement in the Lehigh Valley. So on Saturday night and Tuesday morning, we had a charismatic church meet in our house. And then on Sunday morning, I went to the PCUSA uh, mainline church that our family attended. And so all along, I had mainline and charismatic uh, um, expressions as part of my my Christian heritage and, and Christian um, experience expression, and uh, and I 
uh, even today, you know, I, well, pre-COVID, I should say, uh, but <laughs> I attended uh, two church services, a mainline uh, church service, Blackmore, which is a church John and I both have attended, and also Kings Park, which is a charismatic, uh, predominantly African-American, but very diverse uh, uh, congregation, also in Durham. And uh, I love... I love the diversity of all of that. Uh, and, you know, it, it, I'm a fish out of water in, or, or the odd duck, maybe that's a better way to put it. I'm the odd duck in every setting I do. And maybe one more illustration of this, the, the activity I miss the most from the quarantine, uh, and I can say this because I have tenure, so they can't fire me. But the thing I miss most is playing basketball with the noontime basketball group at Duke, which is by, <laughs> and it's by far and away the most diverse group uh, of at Duke, because not only is it racially and ethnically diverse, but it's SES diverse as well. We have a lot of um, custodians and folks in the landscaping and uh, and food services. And then we have law professors and, mm-hmm. and um, administrators and the um, some of the landscapers uh, folks are uh, pastors on the weekends, you know, in small rural churches. And then, we have some of the most uh, profane cussing, you know, folks that I've ever worked with. <laughs> and we're, the whole th- experience is just wonderfully rich and um, diverse. And, and we have these great conversations. We had these great conversations about uh, reparations and uh, racial tensions on campus. And, you know, the I remember vividly talking to some of these African-American basketball friends of mine, what they thought about the student protests. And they, you know, they were, had a very different perspective than the students had, even though they shared, you know, they were both uh, people of color. And so the whole thing was just fascinating, uh, intellectually rewarding. But I also think in a way, it's it captures a little bit about what Jesus did, which is he was he brought a whole lot of odd ducks together, uh, and um, in so doing, modeled for us that the body of Christ uh, is so much richer and more interesting than the small Christian communities we tend to gravitate towards. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, those are the kinds of spaces that. Um, we need more of, but unfortunately, tend not to have enough of um, on campuses, those spaces where we can come together with a diverse group of people and uh, just share in a completely different uh, common activity or agenda and just engage in conversation and just be human about it and honest and um as you were talking and describing your noon basketball experience i was trying to think about where is that for me like where is that noon basketball-esque experience or place on campus (laughs) where i can engage well i will say this that it 
uh, it was a place where I, I was the least respected, uh, you know, because I'm not I'm a lousy basketball player and they let me know it uh, and they mocked me mercilessly. And then, every, uh, you know, every once in a while they would discover that I had you know been on TV or something to comment on something. And they they would look at me like you're the most, you know, worthless person we out here it's, it surprises me that anyone would be interested in hearing <laughs> uh, and i you know i loved that they um Great. they they are they were dear they are dear friends and i can't wait to get back to to being with them no, that's great. Yeah. I mean, your story just highlights the the power of disrupting roles and disrupting normal relations so that we can see each other in, in different lights and, and to the betterment of probably all of us. I wonder, uh, Peter, as we close here, maybe one last uh, thought from you, other than getting back to basketball, which we uh, hope that and many other things return soon. What's one thing that has you optimistic about being in higher ed right now and looking toward the future? Well, I'm blessed to be at Duke, uh, where the students are really remarkable, uh, as you know, John. Uh, and they're more remarkable than they were when you were at Duke. But they have been, you know, received a gut punch here with uh, COVID and then with um, the 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 horror in Minneapolis and and the, ra- the escalating racial tensions that's another gut punch and um, they're they're under a lot of stress but I look at them and I I see them interacting with uh, one of our distinguished uh, visitors say John Bolton who comes uh, who came in February or. Susan Rice, I guess, is is the one who's going to be Zooming with us next. Um, And I watch them pepper them with questions. I watch them try to understand and get inside the mind. I I watch them trying to break down the empathy gap between uh, those who are making decisions and those who are watching the decisions being made. And if they can break down that empathy gap. And of course, that is exactly, that's the heart of the gospel, that God came down as in human form in Jesus Christ. Uh, if, if, they, if they can understand that, uh, they, they can um, make a difference in the world. And of course, the ones who uh, can combine that empathy gap with a heart for uh for Christ, that that's a very very powerful combination, and and they're still there, and they're still coming year after year, and that's encouraging. Mm. That's great. That's great. Great note to end on, Peter. Thanks so much for being with us. It's been fun yeah. to catch up and hear from you today. Yeah. My pleasure. <laughs>